Well, good morning. It's what a privilege it is to be with you. Uh, I have uh, friends in this congregation, but the first opportunity I've ever had to worship with you. And so I'm so thankful to have this opportunity. I had a chance in the earlier service to meet several folks with Anderson University Connections, uh, some parents, grandparents, and some alumni. And so it's a, it's a joy to be able to do that. I bring you greetings from Anderson University, your Baptist University in Anderson. And uh, as Jeremy mentioned, he is in our doctor ministry program. And I had the privilege of having him in a class a few months ago, and class that was involving preaching. And he warned me ahead of time. He said, now I'm, I'm not really a preacher. I'm a teacher. I'm not really a preacher. So I'm not real good at this. And we heard him preach. And he's not bad. <laughs> he did a pretty good job. Sometimes we can be good at things we didn't even know we were good at. What are you good at? Uh, I'm trying to think about some things that I'm good at. You probably couldn't tell from looking at me. I'm a pretty good eater. <laughs> See, I grew up in a generation. I don't know if anybody else is from this generation. I grew up in this generation where every meal I would sit down and my mother would say, there are starving children in Europe. Clean your plate. Now, I didn't quite make the connection with how cleaning my plate would help the starving children in Europe. And why Europe? You know, like there are some kids in Paris that are sitting there, you know, waiting, you know, wondering about whether I'm going to clean my plate or not. But uh, I'm an obedient young Baptist boy. My mama said, clean my plate. I cleaned my plate. I've been cleaning plates for all my life. <laughs> if you're not careful, I'll clean your plate too. <laughs> so there's some things that we're good at. There's things that we're not good at too. I am not good with plants. Now, some people have a green, anybody out here got a green thumb? You know, there's some folks that just are good at that. I have what you would refer to in, in botany circles as the thumb of death. <laughs> You know, when I walk in the room, plants shudder and turn away. <laughs> I'm not good at plants. It's, and it, it doesn't make sense because from a hereditary standpoint, my father was a farmer. My grandfather is a farmer, was a farmer. My, son, my oldest son is now doing his master's degree in horticulture. He's great with plants. Somehow it seemed to have skipped a generation with me. Uh, I'm just not good at plants. My wife once gave me a big plant to put in my office. And over the next couple of years, that plant experienced what we might refer to as the circle of life. <laughs> it would kind of sit there, and then it would kind of start withering a little bit. And so I'd put some water in it, and it'd come back up. And same thing would happen, start getting a little brown, start dro drooping. I'd put some water in it over and over. For over a couple of year period, I think finally the plant just said, enough. <laughs> And he finally died. Well, when it comes to references to plants and agriculture and things like that, I have to do a little homework. That's just not my natural thing. Because uh, farming and plants just are not a natural part of my life. And that's probably the case for some of you. But the world of the Bible, the people of the Bible, were very involved in agriculture. So Jesus often uses pictures from that world of plants and agriculture to illustrate the spiritual ideas that he's teaching. For example, they got the parable of the sower. 
We offer the example of the, the farmer that's throwing out the seed the plant to try to grow plants. Another time he's talking about having faith like a mustard seed. And in our text today that we're going to be reading from John chapter 15, Jesus uses the example of a vine to illustrate a very important truth. Now, this is not the first time that a vine is used in Scripture to represent something. People in the first century of Israel were very familiar with vineyards, making wine. Fresh drinking water was not plentiful. Uh, there was no tap you could turn on and have the water flow. If you wanted clean water, you had to go hope you could dig a well and find water, and then you'd have to carry jugs and try to get water and bring it back to your home. So water was a very valuable, scarce resource, so wine became an everyday part of the lives of people. And long before Jesus, the prophets would use wine as a symbol. They would talk about plentiful wine being a symbol of God's blessing. Scarce wine as a picture of God's judgment. In the Psalms, several of the prophets, the vine comes to be used to represent the nation of Israel. It's a symbol for Israel. In fact, if you had gone back to the temple the time of Jesus and looked at the porch, the temple porch in Jerusalem, there was an image, a golden vine, that was right there on the temple, symbolizing the nation of Israel. In fact, during the revolt against Rome between 68 AD and 70 AD, uh, the re rebels minted their own coins, and the picture they put on the coins was a picture of a vine. And so, it, vines were something that were very common and familiar to the people of Israel. But the imagery in the scripture is not always positive. In Ezekiel and Jeremiah, the vine is used to symbolize disobedient Israel, wild, dried up, ready for judgment. God the Father there is the vine dresser who stands in judgment over Israel's disobedience. But now Jesus changes the image. No longer does the vine stand for Israel. Now Jesus himself has become the true vine, the source of life and salvation. Our text is from John chapter 15. Let's look at the opening verses of that chapter. And would you stand together with me in honor of God's word? Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, 
that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So the Apostle John, writing this, his, this gospel, he records seven sayings by Jesus that we think of as the I am sayings. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now we come in this chapter to the last one. As Jesus says, I am the true vine. And this is one of the most important of all of the sayings because it contains a precious promise to us. Jesus is telling us that real life happens only when we are connected to Jesus. Real life happens only when we're connected to Jesus. Now, why does Jesus use the metaphor of the vine to represent himself? Well, in calling himself the true vine, Jesus is expressing this truth, that he is the only real source of life. In a grapevine, life exists only through connection to the vine. That's how the branches receive nutrients. That's where they get them from, the vine itself. So the vine reflects the truth that real life happens only when we're connected to Jesus. A missionary who served many years ago told the story of installing a small generator in his mission station to produce light. One day, a native pastor from an outlying village came to visit the missionary when he saw the light bulb hanging from the ceiling, producing light. He was amazed. He asked the missionary if he could have one of the extra bulbs. The missionary gave it to him. He assumed he wanted a memento of their visit. Well, some weeks later, the missionary was visiting this village. He went to call on the pastor at his home, and when he got there, he saw the light bulb hanging from a string in the main room. But to that pastor's frustration, there was no light. And that's when the missionary explained to the pastor how the generator worked, how it sent electrical power to the wires, connecting the light bulb to the power through the wires. Unless the bulb is connected to the source of electricity, it produces no power and thus produces no light. That's the reality that Jesus is sharing here. He is the source of life. He is the source of power. Unless we are connected to him, there is no real life. Now, in this picture, we are the branches connected to him. We are the branches that need life and nourishment and energy. That's why he emphasizes that he is the true vine. Unlike any other person or power that might claim to be the source of life and power. Jesus is the only one who authentically has the key to life abundant and life eternal. All others are mere shadows of him. Elsewhere in this gospel, Jesus has said he is the true light and the true bread. And now he stresses he is the true vine because real life happens only when we're connected to Jesus. But notice something that Jesus, something else he does as he begins this extended metaphor. He points out that God the Father is the vine dresser. He's the gardener. In verse two, Jesus says of the Father, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
Now, most translations use this idea of taking away or cutting off the branches, but James Boyce points out that there's actually a better translation of this, this Greek word, and that translation is to lift up. That does not bear fruit, he lifts up. And this actually corresponds better to what a vine dresser would do with a branch if he, as he cares for the vine. He would typically take the unproductive branch and lift it up to try to make it, give it more exposure to the sun to make it more productive. Now, that's important with, bra- with uh, uh, grapes. The branches need to be lifted up. They need to be supported so they can get the proper sun. That's why grapevines are put on a trellis or on a pole so they can be lifted up off the ground. Well, when we recognize this understanding of the verse, what we see is that Jesus is giving us a logical progression of what a vine dresser does. First, the vine dresser lifts up the branch to see if it can be made more productive. But then Jesus says, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. In other words, he purges or prunes the vine by cutting off the unproductive elements. A vine dresser will try to remove the insects or the parasites, anything that would hinder the plant's growth. The word that's used here is the Greek word katerizo. It means to cleanse, to purify. Interestingly, that Greek word is the word from which we get our English word catharsis, which means to purge, to cleanse ourselves of emotions. So what does this cleansing mean for us, those of us who are branches, who are connected to the vine? It means that God will work to remove anything that is spiritually detrimental in the life of a believer, you or me. It means having our bad habits stripped away. It means having our priorities put in a new order. It means having our values changed. It might even mean removing people from us who are around us who are hurting rather than helping our spiritual growth. So notice the progression. First, God lifts up the believer, drawing him closer to Christ to help the branch become more productive. Then God will prune or cleanse the believer, peeling away those things that would get in the way of a faithful walk with Christ, those things that would hinder our connection to Christ. But then in verse 6, there's a third action that faces the unproductive branch. Jesus says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now, we're talking about more than just simple pruning here. This refers to branches being cast out and destroyed. It's a serious picture of God's judgment. So what's the reason why these branches are being thrown away? Jesus says it clearly. If anyone does not abide in me. Now go back now and see what Jesus said in verses 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do Nothing. And here we come to the key idea of the passage. Here's the secret of fruitfulness. Abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ. Or in other words, 
Real life happens only when we're connected to Jesus. Now, in the previous chapter of John's gospel, in chapter 14, Jesus has been talking about how the Father is abiding in the Son, how the Holy Spirit will abide in the believer. And now he reminds us of this important truth for our lives. We must abide in Christ if we are going to experience the life that God intends us to have. You know, you and I live in a culture that tells us we ought to be able to do what we want, when we want, however we want. But Jesus cuts to the chase. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, Sin does not make us bad people. Sin makes us dead people. Satisfying God's holy, righteous demands is not something you can do by just trying a little harder. Apart from Christ, you and I are like leaves and branches that are cut off from the vine. And apart from our source, there is no life. So how does that happen in your life and mine? How do we abide in Christ? Well, first of all, we need to be in Christ. That means surrendering our lives to him, being his disciple, being his follower. It means being connected to the vine, connected to Christ. That's what Jesus is talking about in verse 3 when he tells his disciples, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. They've already left behind their previous lives to follow him. Now, they don't, at this stage, they don't fully understand the implications of that. The cross is still ahead. The resurrection is still ahead. But 11 of these men have become connected to Christ. They've become connected to the vine. They are in Christ. And if you've never had that experience of giving your life to Christ, of accepting his free gift of grace and acknowledging his lordship in your life. If you've never done that before, that's the first step in your journey. Before you can be a thriving branch, you have to be connected to the vine. Real life happens only when we're connected to Jesus. Second, to abide in him, Jesus tells us we are to live in obedience to him. He says in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, as children, one of the tough lessons we have to learn is that obedience is important. Anybody who's ever raised a three-year-old believes in original sin. (laughs) You, You don't have to train them to do that stuff. It just comes naturally. But if we've grown up in a godly home, we, we eventually learn that most of those rules that our parents gave us, instead of just being there to constrain us, to make us unhappy, to not let us have fun, which is what we think, we find that most of those rules actually are for our good. They're to help us. They're for our health. They're for our safety. And if we've accepted Christ as Lord of our lives, by implication, we have often given him the authority over our lives. How tragic then it is when somebody joins a church, maybe gets baptized, but then has the attitude, I'm still in charge of my own life. I'll still do what I want, when I want, how I want. 
I heard the other day about a young man. He said, I'm tired of everybody telling me what to do. I'm just going to show them. I'll go join the Marines. <laughs> Maybe not the wisest move if you want nobody to tell you what to do. But how much more foolish is it to say that to the creator of the universe, to say to the Lord of life, okay, God, I want a relationship with you, but I want it on my terms. Just don't try to tell me how to live my life. And then we hear the echo of that tragic warning. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. Real life happens only when we're connected to Jesus. If we're going to abide in Christ, then we need to be in Christ through a commitment of our lives to him. And we need to live lives in obedience to him. But there's a third element to abiding in Christ, and it's central to this whole passage. If we abide in him, we will bear fruit. We'll bear fruit. Look at how many times bearing fruit is referred to in this passage. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Verse 4, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. The reality of a vine is that it is mission-focused. Ancient people don't grow vines for the, for the tiny little flowers. They grew vines to produce fruit. And you can't build fruit. It has to grow from a living thing. As Warren Wearsby put it, if we're not bearing fruit, then we are not fulfilling our purpose on earth. And that means we are not really living. We're wasting our lives instead of investing them in eternal things. What kind of fruit are we to produce so that we can glorify the Father in our lives? Well, there's the fruit of those with, with whom we share Christ, the fruit of your witness, sharing the gospel with others. And there's the fruit of helping others to grow in their walk with Christ. There's the fruit that grows in our lives through personal holiness, faithfulness to Christ. There's the fruit of the Spirit, those characteristics that emerge from a life that's being lived in connection to Christ. There are acts of service we do in Jesus' name. Wasn't that video wonderful showing the uh, couple of hundred volunteers yesterday that were out serving the community in Jesus' name? The author of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, through him, then let us continually offer up. Excuse me, uh, Paul talks about in Colossians, bearing fruit in every good work. And then the, the author of Hebrews talks about the fruit of praise and worship when he says, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Your fruit may not look like my fruit or may not look like somebody else's. Because God has not made us the same. He's not given us the same gifts. He's not put us in the same circumstances. But if we are abiding in Christ, 
the result will be fruit. In verse 11, Jesus brings this lesson to a close when he says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. God wants you to have joy. He wants you to have overflowing joy, abundant joy, joy like the world cannot give you. The God who created you, the one who sent his son to die a sacrificial death on your behalf, that God, he wants you to experience his joy. And that joy comes from abiding in Christ because real life happens only when we are connected to Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do not deserve what you have done for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, we do not deserve that. We cannot earn it. But how thankful we are for your grace that you've reached out to us to offer us life eternal, life abundant. The off, to offer us the opportunity to abide in Christ. And Father, even now as the Holy Spirit is in this room and works in hearts and lives, Father, draw us to the decision that you need us to make. Father, there may be some in this room that have never taken that first step. They've never come to be in Christ. They've never given their life to him. They've never turned to him in repentance and faith and asked him to be their Lord and their Savior. Father, help them that to even this day would be that day of decision. Father, there may be some that did that long ago, but, but as they look at it today, they honestly couldn't say they're abiding faithfully in you. They've let the priorities get out of whack. And Father, could today be for them a day of renewal and recommitment? Lord, there may be other decisions that need to be made. Some to come join this, this fellowship of believers. Some perhaps to give their life to you in full-time service. Whatever the decisions are that need to be made, we give these moments to you. We pray that you would use them, that we would not leave here unchanged. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand to sing our song of invitation, if God is speaking to your heart, if there's a decision that you need to make, would you come? Brother Jeremy will be here at the front to talk with you, to minister to you. As we stand together, you come as God leads. <laughs>